All right, good evening, everyone. One, we have one person who said, good evening, thank you, good evening. All right. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. We'll go ahead and get started. Lord, it's more of a privilege than we know to be able to come together to study your word. It's a privilege for us to even have the word of God written, that you've revealed yourself to us uh, and done so in a way that we can comprehend, even though we can't know you fully, for you're incomprehensible, that we can know you truly through the things that you've revealed to us. So help us as we continue to think through handling the Word of God well, uh, to, uh, to have reverence for you and for what you've said, and that we might um, be workmen who are approved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, good evening. So, uh, one housekeeping note before I send you off to do uh, your discussions with your tables. Uh, Just so we're clear, after tonight, we only have two more classes, right? So, we have tonight, and then we have June 12th, and then we have June 26th, and then I'm done with you. (laughs) Actually... I should, I should take you all out to dinner for having stuck around. Um, that's gonna be, I'm going to cut that part out of, the, uh, out of the audio so nobody can prove that I actually said that. So what we're going to end up doing is, just so you guys are clear, um, there, are, there are four lessons that are left in your workbook, but there's only three meetings, including tonight. So we're going to fold Lesson 12 into Lesson 11. All right, so now don't go read Lesson 11 and Lesson 12 and try to figure out how we're going to do it. I will tell you how we're going to do it. I'm just not going to tell you tonight because I don't know yet. So, uh, but just so that you know, so that you, you don't get confused as you're looking at it, be like, wait a minute, we've only got these three more, but how is it that we've got four more lessons, stuff like that? So don't worry about that. June 26th is our last one. We're going to do Lesson 11 and Lesson 12 on June uh, 26th. Uh, and that'll be our, our last one. So, everybody clear on that? No questions? That wasn't a question, that was a statement. You have no questions. Uh, okay, so, for this evening, I want you to spend the, the next 10, 15 minutes or so reviewing your homework from uh, the last time we were together. So, that was, we talked about comparing translations, why that's an important tool for the interpretive process. Remember where we are in this whole this whole uh, process of learning how to study the Bible, right? I'm gonna, we're going to review a little bit just for a couple seconds. Uh, I, I used four, and it's not just me, I didn't come up with it, but four, um, four words, and it, we made an acronym out of it, O-I-C-A, right? Do you remember what those words are? The first step is, O is observation, right? What does the text say? The next one, I, interpretation, what does it mean? 
And then C, this is the tricky one because not everybody includes it. Correlation. How does it fit with the rest of Scripture? So we spent a little bit of time talking about that. And then uh, A, application. Why does it matter? So we haven't reached application yet. So we are, the first couple weeks we did just some, some background stuff, and then we, we focused on observation. We talked about why paying close attention to the text is important and uh, how, why we should ask good questions of the text, how that helps us bridge the gap between uh, observing what's there and figuring out what it means. We ask good questions. And then the last number of weeks, we've been talking about tools that we use for the stage of interpretation, which is really important because if we don't get what it means, what it meant to the original audience, the theological message that is true for them, for us, for all time, then we could skip right to application and we could apply the Bible to our lives, but we're not going to be applying it very well. We'll be applying what we, what we think the Bible means, not what it actually means. So this step, that's why we're spending so much time on interpretation. So uh, we've, we've talked through all these different tools, right? Phrasing and, and discerning the main point and questions, cross-references. Uh, we talked about logical connecting words, uh, word studies, and then translations. And so uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, something else, uh, genre, and how that helps us as we learn to interpret the Bible. Uh, but what I want you to do now is take 10, 15 minutes, talk about your homework from uh, lesson eight, where you're comparing translations of, is it Philippians 3, 2 to 6, right? And so this is page 111, 112, 113 in your, in your workbook. So um, so review your homework from there, and, and particularly, I'd, I'd love for you guys to talk about um, what issues, as you compared translations, what issues did you notice? What, what similarities and dissimilarities did you notice, and, and how might those point you to things that you would need to study more in order to understand it? What, you know, how does that help kind of highlight what some of the interpretive issues are uh, in, the, in this text? Uh, so would you take 10, 15 minutes and do that, and then we'll talk about it as a, as a group. Okay. Let's, let's talk about what you guys found comparing these translations. So, where's my, I have a microphone today, maybe, if it works, okay, so what did you guys find in comparing translations, did, was there anything that stuck out as being issues that you would think, if I was, if I was going to be studying this passage, I want to want to look at this more. You can just pass it around the table. Sure, you yeah. all got, yeah. <laughs> so one thing I found was um, your method of putting it into columns really helped because I tried oh, reading it this way and yeah. I could not do it. So I actually had to type it out into columns and that was very helpful. Yeah, good. That's just because I'm OCD. Yeah, it's very I can't, I can't hit, I love that. That's perfect. That's wonderful. That's, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> 
She might be. The one interesting observation in the New Living Translation, yeah. uh, where it says, and this is the only place where I saw it, it, it says that those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Mm -hmm. So that's the only translation where there's a connection between circumcision and being saved. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. So do you guys remember where the New Living Translation kind of fell on our spectrum? Was it more um, word for word or more... Easy reading. Easy, easy reading. <laughs> it, pro it probably was easier to read. Yeah. Um, it has a better flow to it. Yeah, so it's oftentimes the further you get on that side of the, of the translation spectrum, you'll have actually a lower reading level. So um, say, I don't remember what it is, but for some of them it's like this is a fifth grade reading level. Or, or, so, maybe, or a second grade reading level. I don't have to go check. So, yeah. Yeah, Brent. If you're volunteering for it, go for it. Uh, the, one of the things I noticed was all the translations use capital S, Spirit of God, except for the King James uses a lowercase s. Interesting, yep. Um, which, which may imply, like, all the other versions were worshiping through the Spirit, and the King James is like, we're worshiping, like, in our spirit or something along those lines. So Yeah, that's possible. So here's, here's something that, oh, you're going to pass around the mic, so I don't even need to grab it. Great. Um, so with things like capitalization, Hebrew and Greek don't, like initial, the initial manuscripts didn't have capitalization. Hebrew doesn't. Capitalization does not exist in Hebrew. Um, in Greek, the first manuscripts were written in all capital letters. Later manuscripts were written in all lowercase letters. Right, so uh, things that we choose to capitalize, we choose to capitalize based on the way that it works in English. And so this is a great example of why every translation is an interpretation because you have to make a choice. So you're either choosing in English to capitalize it or not capitalize it. So the word is spirit, but then the question is, what does it refer to? Does it refer to God's spirit, capital S, the third person of the Trinity, or does it refer to our spirit, the non-material part of us, right? And so then you have to answer that question from, from context, but you may not always agree with the, the way that the translators decide to do it. Uh, and so even if it's a capital S, it, you guys need to know that something like that is, it's not necessarily the way that it looks in, in Greek or in, in Hebrew. That's the, the, tra the translator's decision uh, of what to do. And so then you have to answer that question based on, okay, which one makes more sense given what's in the context, given everything else that Paul says, things like that. It seems to like the way he wrote the sentence is different for the King James. Like all the other versions, I think, literally say worship by the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. And the King James says worship God in spirit. So it's like they changed it. It's, like, depending yep. on how the sentence flows, yep. um, the words. Yep, and it's possible. I, I haven't looked at the, the, the different Greek text, but it's possible that the Greek text that the King James is based off of differs there from the modern ones. Yeah. Yeah, Joy. So one of the things I noticed in the 
Um, most of them talk about the mutilators of the flesh, yep. etc. But King James says, beware of the concision. So I had to look that word up because it's not a word I use in everyday <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yes. And it means cut off. Yep. So are they talking about cutting off of flesh or cutting off a group of people? Or, you know, particular... Because, yep. you know, they're talking about beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, because mm-hmm. they do use the word circumcision in the next sentence. So, yep. you know, why would they use a different word? Yeah. So... There? Um, you guys will have to tell me if in your Bible, is there a footnote? Do any of you have a footnote in that verse, whatever Bible you're using? So I have the NAS. So mine has a footnote, so you all might not have it, but um, mine, mine has one that says there, and this you know, maybe would, would help a little bit. So the NAS says, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision. Now, what's interesting, in the NAS, the word true is in italics. So that's not there. So the Greek just says, we are the circumcision. Um, and so the, actually, the, the Greek word there is not circumcision, which is probably why they put false circumcision there. So the Greek word literally is mutilation. So it says, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision. Um, now, the, the reason they would maybe try to sh- have both say circumcision is that in, in, in Greek, this is a play on words, right? So Paul, uh, the word mutilation is katatome, and the word for circumcision is peritome. And so um, Paul is calling these people, it's like they, they call themselves the circumcision party, and we see this in some of the other books. Uh, that Paul writes. These are the people who do say, uh, you must be circumcised to be saved. You see this Acts 15, you see this in Galatians uh, and, and throughout some of Paul's other writings. And so Paul, um, in a way that, that lands better in Greek than it does in English because the words are too dissimilar, um, it's like they want to be called the peritome, the circumcision. No, they're the katatome. They're the mutilators. Um, so it doesn't sound quite as good in English, but, but in Greek it would have been a, a, a pretty powerful rhetorical play. Um, I can't think of any great English examples off the top of my head, but that's, I think that's the, reason, that's the reason why. And you'll see that reflected in these different translations, how they choose to translate these. It's like those mutilators... Um, so the King James with the concision and circumcision, they're trying to get at that idea that it's, well, they sound the same, they're related. Uh, problem with that is nobody uses the word concision anymore at least, right? So that's not as helpful. The other translations get the idea of mutilation, which is what it says, um, but then you miss some of the wordplay, right? So this is, it's not quite as straightforward as just saying, well, just say what the word is, right? Another version of this, as long as we're talking about it, is in Genesis 2, um, we miss the Hebrew play on words. It says that God took 
God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And the word for earth there, the word for ground, is uh, Adama, ground. And it says, so God took the dust from the Adama and he made Adam. Uh, so if you're going to, I have one uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible that was done where he really tried to bring out some of these word plays. And it says, uh, and so God took from the mud and made mud man or so, something like that. Or he took from the dust and he made dusty. Like that, that's the way it may, that's the way it kind of reads in Hebrew, right? So same, same kind of thing. But we miss that in, in some of the English translations, even if they're accurate to what it's saying, we miss some of the play on words. Right. Okay. So that's why, said, so I don't, so yeah, so I don't remember exactly what he said. It was, but it was something like that. It was something like try, trying to uh, get it. Yes, good, good catch. <laughs> it was good. Okay. Yeah, uh, oh, did you have one? I mean, don't let Brett volunteer you if you don't want, if you don't want one. We don't, not going to, you make Brett talk next that um, the NLT seemed to be kind of giving more information to maybe someone who was not as knowledgeable about the word, like they would say the mutilators, and then he defines them, you know, who say you must be circumcised to be saved, and then down at the bottom he says a member of the Pharisees, and he defines them, who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. The other versions don't do that, because there's probably an assumption as Paul knew his audience would know those words. That's probably not in the direct translation. Yeah. Those, and they're not in the other versions. Right. So, so that kind of a phrase, like in the, new, in the NLT on, uh, on page 112 at the bottom where it says, uh, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law in a couple other places. It does that in that. It's, uh, so like that, that phrase isn't in Greek, but it is, in their minds they're saying, this is an explanation of what the Pharisees are. Um, in particular, why he would be talking about the Pharisees there. So I'd say, well, I don't know that that's, I mean, it's helpful as, for, as you're reading it. I don't know that that's helpful for study because that's not actually in the work. Um, it's probably what it means, probably what he's getting at. Uh, but I would say, well, I think it might be more helpful if he, they just left it at, I was a member of the Pharisees, and then uh, you had to do the work of figuring out, well, why does this matter for the text? I actually think you're going to learn more that way. Um, so it's fine to read, but that's probably not the best translation for study because of, of that. But it's a good one to compare it to because then you're like, oh, okay. So the translators of the NLT are, are saying, this is what Paul's getting at by saying this. And it will help you as you think through, do I need to think about why he would say, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees? And who they translated it for. I mean, so if you remember, we, we talked about this a little bit last, uh, two weeks ago. We said, when you get a translation, I know this is, not, this is not enthralling reading, but read the introduction to the translation. Because it will tell you what the goal of the translators is as they're, as they're translating the text in this particular way. And so, you can get mad at the, the translators of the NLT for not translating it like the New American Standard. 
but they tell you up front that's not what they're doing. They're translating it for a certain uh, group of people. They're translating it in a, with a certain philosophy for a certain purpose. Uh, and so we can't, uh, it, it's very easy for us to, I think, throw stones, especially when we argue for, we want essentially literal translation and, and all those things. It's very easy for us to throw stones at other Bible translations because we, they don't do it the way we think they should do it. But um, the vast majority of the time, people that are working on these translations are very, very conservative. And, and they're just they're translating in a way for a, to reach a certain audience. So that's a really good observation. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. One of the things that stuck out to me was under the message mm. where it says, the real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. <laughs> so it kind of adds a whole new dimension to, uh, to that notion of, of worship um, and worshiping God in spirit. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I, I understand what it means to worship God in spirit, but for a, a new believer, this could, I, it seems to me, could create in their mind I got to work out my salvation. I got to do all these works to uh, to get approval before God to be in, to be in the ministry. Yeah. So it just kind of ra it, it raises the notion that wait a minute, what are you really talking about? Yeah. So so this is a great example of somewhere where you know Eugene Peterson has has filled out the text with sort of his commentary. And that's what the message is. It's Eugene Peterson's commentary on the Bible, essentially. And so then seeing something like that should ask us, or should force us to ask, um, is that what the text means there? Or is this, this is the way that he's reading it, but wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, that's, that's what it means. And it could be confusing. And, and there's a sense in which what he's done here is he's chosen not to choose between worshiping by the Spirit and worshiping in spirit, right? He's like, okay, well, we, the ones, we're the ones that the Spirit of God leads to work away and fill the air with Christ's praise that we do it, as we do it. So it's kind of both. So he's said, well, I don't want to choose, so I'm going to make it say both. Well, it probably isn't both. So... Um, that's rather ambiguous. So sometimes the message can be, can be helpful in just uh, making you read the text in a fresh way. But I was recently, this just reminds me of this, I was recently at a, uh, at a conference and during one of the sessions, the speaker used a verse from the message and he built this whole point around this, this part of the verse from the message. And I'm, I'm looking at, at my Bible and I'm like, yeah, that's not there. Um, Eugene added that in to explain it, but he's making this whole this whole point about uh, about what's going on in this verse. Uh, it was in Romans eight about um, we cry, uh, you know, we cry out to to God, Abba, Father, um, 
And it was something like, and we cry out, what's next, Papa, with eager expectation. And the eager expectation part, that's not there. But he made this whole point about it being, oh, this eager expectation. I'm like, you could probably make a similar point using a different text that actually says that rather than using, than using this one. So it can, be, it can be a hope because somebody could be listening to that and say, oh, what a great message. That must be what Romans 8.15 means. Well, probably not because it's not there. Uh, at the very least, it forces you to go back and say, is that what Paul means when he says this? Is that implied? I got I to look at that because it's not nearly as clear uh, as, as our friend Eugene would have it. So, yeah, that's a good observation. No, not necessarily. So, if he's, a fal- if he's a false teacher, because this is his commentary on the Bible. This isn't, this isn't him saying, uh, this is basically like if he would be preaching this to his congregation. This is his understanding of it. So, it's, he's not saying, uh, this is the Bible, right? Um, so, now, the problem is a lot of people read it that way. Now, if he's a false teacher, it would be on other grounds of things that he teaches, right? So, now, if you come to a place in, in the message where it says you're not saved by faith in Jesus Christ or God is not a trinity or things like that, then we'd have a problem. Or if he's saying that in his, in his teaching. Um, so, recently, he, I think he said some things about uh, homosexuality that then he said, but then he retracted. And so... He's an old man. He doesn't. I'm just. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying. He's. Yeah, he's he's been in pastoral ministry for like forty years, so, or fifty years. So he's um, he wouldn't necessarily be my go-to guy. I'm just saying it that way. But he's there's a lot of things that he has to say, particularly about pastoral ministry, and about Christian living that are pretty insightful. So, but he wouldn't be the guy. I wouldn't read his systematic theology. He also hasn't written one, which, but, yeah. Yes? Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, so the question is, so false teaching, what, what would qualify as that? Is that just dealing with absolutes, uh, or is it teaching something falsely? So, no teacher outside of people who wrote inspired scripture is infallible or has the same kind of authority as Jesus or the apostles. And so, in a sense, every teacher is at some point in their career a false teacher because they don't get everything right all the time. So, the question would be, um, what are they getting wrong and why are they getting it wrong? 
And how often are they getting it wrong? And so there are, there are things where, uh, depending on where you put a certain doctrinal issue on the, the spectrum of, you know, first importance, secondary importance, you know, tertiary importance, I don't really want to talk about it because it doesn't matter that much. What kind of, where, wherever you put it on the taxonomy of kind of where doctrines go um, will depend. Like, so if somebody, like those top level issues, justification by faith, inspiration and inerrancy of scripture, the Trinity, um, the necessity of, uh, of uh, bodily resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, things like this uh, would be if somebody is going around saying, you're not justified by faith, you're justified by works. That, that's heresy. Like, that is false tea. That's blasphemous. Somebody's saying, God's not a trinity. Okay, that's a different team. That's a different religion. Um, so, but then the further down you go, the further you get to, to places where it's like, these are just things that, these are, call them intramural debates. We debate on them, but we know that the pe- people on the other side of the debate, they're Christians. We just might disagree with them, but we're brothers and sisters. And so, I believe only believers should be baptized. I know a lot of people who love Jesus and believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant who baptize infants, right? Now, so I don't think they're false teachers. I just think they're incorrect. I don't agree with their interpretation. I think my interpretation's better. Um, but I, w- I would never call them a false teacher. So I think this, that kind of thing is reserved for somebody who is denying the faith. Because if it's going to be anybody who ever teaches anything falsely, then I'm a false teacher. And so are all of you. Right? Unless all of you have taught perfectly for your entire lives. Um, so, so I always want to be real cautious about calling somebody a false teacher. Um, and, and I really only want to do it when they're denying fundamental doctrines of the faith. I may disagree with them in some of their practices. I may disagree with them in the way that they interpret Scripture, things like that. But unless, if they're knowingly twisting Scripture to lead people astray, then yeah, they're a false teacher, and we can call them that. So the trouble is that for some people, the, the box of what is acceptable and unacceptable is, is smaller or narrower, and so they might be more prone to call somebody a false teacher that maybe I wouldn't. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. He... So, do you recommend Amplified Bible? I didn't see that fall in your spectrum. Or yeah, so anywhere. do I recommend the Amplified Bible? Because it's very close to what uh, Nathan was saying, like, you know, it has a lot of explanations in the square brackets, like, yeah. you know, explain about everything. Right, so have any of you seen the Amplified Bible before? A couple of you? So, th- just from watching Joel Osteen, did you want to talk about false teachers? Because we can keep talking about that. Um, so, the Amplified Bible is basically takes, it, it translates, I use that loosely, it, it, it's almost like a, an interlinear Bible in a sense where it, it, will, it will translate the Bible into English, but then on, on a number of key words, 
it will put in brackets after the words, here's all the kind of different nuances that this word could have. Um, and so it makes for a much longer translation because after a bunch of words, it adds like four or five other words. Now, if you remember, when we talked about word studies, one of the, the problems that we have with word studies is uh, when we, um, it's called uh, illegitimate totality transfer. You guys remember that? That was, that was a big fun term. Uh, basically, that means it means everything at once, right? So when you go to a dictionary and you say, he uses the word, um, we use the term uh, run, right? We use the example of run. So we used run here, but what he must mean is all the things that run could possibly mean. And so if, if you're using the Amplified Bible knowing that uh, all of the, the terms that come in brackets, like it doesn't mean all of those things at once. It probably means like one of those things, but it's trying to give you the range of what, it, what the word could mean. Um, then then it's fine. I, I mean, I would, I would only use it as a supplement to my, to, to my study. Um, so I think you could, you could do just as well doing a word study, probably. Um, something like that might help you to find some of the words that might be, might be good to study. Um, it's not one that I would recommend for kind of your daily reading Bible, but that's also partially just because it's really choppy. I just find, yeah, I find it, you know, that to be unhelpful. So... But it's one to check out. It's a resource that's that's out there. So, oh. oh. You guys passing notes? <laughs> I, I'm. <clears throat> focused on the idea of language changing over time. Mm -hmm. And so we were exposed to the King James, and 400 years later we see contemporary English, yep. and we see some dramatic differences. Yep. So now in the 1500s, uh, there were English translate, translations to English from the so-called, or from the original Greek. Yep. For 1500 years it passed. Yep. And they certainly don't have the technology that we have today. For, so how do you over, how do you over, and then the Hebrew mm -hmm. is even older, further back. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you compensate for those, for that? How do you, how do you, how do they translate it? Or just, yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you really get it right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and even Greek has changed, but not, I mean, so, but they're, yeah, so it's ancient Greek, they're translating. Um, how do, you, how do you get it right? You spend your whole life studying. I'm serious. I mean, guys like William Tyndale spent their whole life studying Greek and Hebrew so they could translate the Bible. That was their job. And he got killed for it. And he was murdered for it because the King of England didn't want an English Bible translation. Um, so... Uh, in terms of uh, translating and understanding uh, Greek and Hebrew, like, yeah, there's 1,500 years or, or, or longer since the documents were written, but 
the ability to translate the languages didn't, didn't die. So they just had to make adjustments as they went for the language they were speaking. So Jerome, when he translated the Bible into Latin, he spoke Latin, but he also knew Greek and Hebrew. He, went, he actually went and lived in Israel to translate the Bible into Greek and Hebrew. So he learned Hebrew living in Israel. Uh, so that may not answer your question. I mean, it's, it's, a much, I mean, it's a much bigger question than, I mean, how do you get it right? We could spend the next hour talking about that. Speaking of which, it's almost 8 o'clock, so we're going to move on. So, tonight, we are going to talk a little bit about um, what's called genres. So, you can see here, we have the three principles for interpretation, and we're adding a fourth. Either, either they actually had four, but they called it three, or I put an extra one in, that they didn't put in, which I think is more likely the case. So there's four principles for interpretation. Surprise! We're talking about literary interpretation tonight, literary. So we're talking about the type of literature that the Bible is, or individual books or sections uh, of the Bible are. That's what we call uh, genre. Um, has anybody... We probably don't use that word a ton today, but has anybody heard the word genre used just kind of in everyday? So music, yeah, music, movies, or books, yeah. So uh, uh, genre, that second bullet point, it's a way of classifying media according to their type or style rather than their specific content or storyline. And so... um, you know, with books, you have all sorts of different types of, of genre, movies. Uh, if you go on Netflix, um, you, they have it organized by genre. Here's action movies, here's romance, here's sci-fi, here's uh, TV shows you can binge watch. That's apparently one of the genres that they have. Uh, so uh, it's a way of, of putting together things that have the same kind of basic style, even if the content is different. Uh, so you can organize things by content, or you could organize them by, by the style. So the Bible's made up of many different genres, many different types of literature, different styles, different structures. And so uh, this is from page 115 in your workbook. Reading the Bible with the specific literary genres in mind will help us not to read the Bible flatly. Okay? If we assume everything is the same genre, has the same style, has the same structure, all works the same way, we won't read the Bible well. We won't, we won't uh, read it with the textures and the contours uh, of the Bible. The Bible in all its genres simply cannot be read as a flat, uniform whole. Rather, sensitivity to the variety of biblical genres gives our reading a depth and texture not, not otherwise possible. Now, we do this intuitively in, in English. Um, you may not realize that you do it, but you do it. There's, there's something different about watching a documentary or watching the news or watching a sci-fi movie or watching a romantic comedy or things like 
you interact with the media differently because, so it's one thing, if I'm, if I'm watching a TV show, my wife and I like the show Madam Secretary, uh, and so there'll be world events that happen, well, not really world events, they're world events in the show. It could be, you know, dramatic, terrorist attack, or 24, right? One, one of the 24 episodes, a nuclear bomb that goes off, right? Now, the way I interact with that is going to be different than if I saw that on CNN, right? So we intuitively do this. We know how to, how to interact with different genres, different ways. The problem is we're not as familiar with the way that genres in the Bible work. Particularly, there are some genres that are very unique to uh, not just the Bible, but the time period of the Bible. And we don't necessarily have, um, uh, have parallel genres in our understanding. So it takes us some time to kind of get used to it which is why there are some parts of the Bible that you're like, this makes no sense to me. And it's not just because it's theologically hard, like, how does this work? It's, I don't know what to make of this. Book of Revelation would be a wonderful example. You know, I saw a beast coming out with ten heads, and then one head had a horn and stuff like that. You're like, what is this? Right, so... um, in our day. So this is just an example. Even within one newspaper, there's a bunch of different genres of literature, right? So you have articles that make up the bulk of it. So you're expecting somebody to report on something that's happened or is happening with uh, a relative uh, uh, reliability in terms of fact. They're supposed to do their, their job well and report on What's, what's actually happening, and many times in articles, the goal is not to tell you what you should think, it's just to tell you what happened. Whether or not you agree with that actually being the case, that's what it's supposed to be. Then you have opinion pieces or editorials, that's when they're telling you what to think. And there's letters to the editors, so there's people write in to tell the editors things. And there's advertisements. If I read an advertisement the, way, the same way I read an article, I'd probably get both of them wrong. Right? But I know, because I am familiar with these genres, I know how I'm supposed to read these. Uh, this, I, I use this one sometimes when I talk about um, different genres addressing the same event. Uh, and we're like, well, which one is right, which one's wrong? Okay? Um, so you guys know what a box score is? Like, so for like a baseball game, it'll have... It'll have the, the, the score of the game, and then it'll have all the players who played, and it'll have their stats, how many hits did they have, how many runs, so forth. It'll have the stats for the pitchers and, and things like that. And it's just it's showing you what happened in the game. And then you turn to the sports page, and they'll have an article about what happened during the game. And then they'll have an opinion piece about what happened during the game. So which one's right? Well, they're all doing something different, but they're all addressing the same event. And so um, there's an example in, in the book of Exodus when it talks about the, the Israelites going over the Red Sea uh, or passing through the Red Sea, the waters part, right? So Exodus 14 is a narrative, and it's telling you this is what happened. Exodus 15 is a poem. It's the song of the sea. And so this is when it says when they got to the other side of the sea, this is what they sang. They sang this, this song. It's this poem, this, these lyrics of, of what they sang. And it's describing what just happened in Exodus 14. 
but it's doing it poetically. It's doing it in a way that is filled with, with symbolism and, and things like that. And so, if you read Exodus 14, it'll say, um, uh, you know, the Egyptians came through, and as soon as the Israelites came out, God caused the, the waters to crash down on top of the Egyptians and, and, and wipe them out. In the Song of the Sea, says that God is to be glorified because he has hurled the horse and the rider into the sea. Well, which one is it? Either the water crashed on top of them or he hurled them into the sea. Or is it that what happened is the water crashed down on top of them and then poetically they're using this idea that God has hurled them into the sea to describe what happened in a way that is... Uh, more effective, right? It, it, it creates more, more imagery in your mind of what is actually happening there. But I wouldn't imagine uh, an Egyptian being on the side of the Red Sea and suddenly being lifted up out of nowhere and thrown into the Red Sea. I don't think that's, that's the point. So we read different genres different ways, and it's not because one's right and one's wrong. It's they're trying to do different things. You have weather reports, you could call those prophecy, <laughs> or false prophecy, <laughs> classified corrections, captions. So other, this is just in one newspaper or one website if you read your newspaper online now. So what we're going to do tonight is there's, there are some... Uh, classes on how to study the Bible that will spend most of their time talking about individual genres. Um, so that's not what we've done. We've tried to focus on different tools we could give you to understand passages of Scripture that for the most part can be applied to all of the genres. Um, but we want you to have a, at least a passing familiarity with the types of genres that are there so that uh, you're aware of them, and that as you study, particularly if you're going to study a book of the Bible, you might want to read a little bit about that genre uh, before, you're, before you're studying. So I'm going to recommend a book. I'll put this on the website. Um, this book is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, this is the third edition. It's in a fourth edition now uh, by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. This was one of my textbooks uh, my first year in seminary, but it's, it's not don't be intimidated by that. It's a good book. You should get it. Um, and what they will do is they take the majority of the book to talk through the different genres of Scripture to help you understand some of the different, you know, quote-unquote rules for interpreting those genres uh, and, and for applying them and how, how you do that. Um, so uh, I'll put that on the website so you guys can see that. Uh, but that would be one I would, I would pick up. That would be helpful. So what I want to do now is I just want to do a flyby of the different major types of literature in the Bible, and then we're going to do a little, uh, a little exercise to try to see if you can identify some of them. So the first one is historical narrative. Um, you can follow along if you're on page... Oh. Page 118, does that look right? Page 118. 
So a lot of this I've just taken right from your, your book, so you can kind of look either place. This is one that we, we generally have a pretty easy time getting because we have something very similar in, in our culture. We have historical narratives. We have history books. Um, we have documentaries. Things. I mean, it's, these are... Um, these are stories that have characters and people and are saying uh, things that have actually happened. So it's, it's the most common, common genre in the Bible. Um, and then the, uh, the definition that they give you in, on page 118 is that narrative in its broadest sense is an account of specific space-time events. Okay, so it's not fiction. And so fiction can be described as stories with characters and plots and things like that. That's not what we're talking about. It's not fiction. It's things that actually happened. It's history. Their stories are recorded with a beginning, middle, and an end. And so, uh, books that are primarily historical narrative, either all of them or significant portions of them, I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah, Haggai, Acts. And others littered throughout, and I think we'll, we'll come to it in a bit, that um, different, or maybe I took it out, different uh, biblical books can have multiple types of genres within them. Um, they may even switch back and forth between genres regularly. So they could fit into um, different genres. And so uh, we'll come to prophecy in a little bit. So prophecy is a particular type of literature, but oftentimes prophecy is also poetry. Um, And so now poetry doesn't necessarily mean it's prophecy, but oftentimes prophecy is written in a poetic form. So there can be multiple. Or some of the prophets like Jeremiah will switch back and forth between narrative and prophetic poetry. So, historical narrative, one of the easier ones for us to identify. We usually don't have too much of a a hard time doing that. Now, the Gospels are also historical narrative, but they're a little different. Uh, oftentimes we'll, we'll say, well, the Gospels are biographies of Jesus, which is sort of true. I mean, they tell the truth about Jesus. They tell historical facts about Jesus. So they're biographical. But strictly speaking, they're not really biographies. If they're biographies, they're very incomplete because they're missing huge portions of his life. Right? So also the, the kind of biography that we understand today really didn't exist back then. The gospel is something different. It's a very unique type of literature that it's, it's, they're very selective in what they choose to talk about. So they talk about the birth of Christ, and they talk about the last three years of Christ's ministry, and the, the vast majority of the, uh, at least in, in terms of, think of like the gospel of John, if you split the gospel of John in half, we went through John not too long ago as a church, if you split John in half, half of it is about um, the first, really the three years of Jesus' ministry, 
the second half of John is basically about the last day and a half of his life. So the Gospels, one, one commentator said the Gospels are essentially um, narratives of the crucifixion and resurrection that have extended introductions. Right? So now, whether or not we agree exactly with that characterization, the idea is that the, the focal point is on the work of Jesus. And so, but also, the point is not just to relay the facts. The point is very theological, um, you could say evangelistic, that the Gospels are meant to confront the reader with the truth about Jesus and present them with the option of choosing to follow Him. Okay, so look at that in, in John 20. John tells us, this is why I wrote the Gospel. Right, he says, now Jesus did many other things, many other signs before his disciples, which have not been written here. So he says, there's a whole lot of other stuff I could have written, but I didn't. Then he says, but these things have been written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the point of John writing the gospel is not just to write facts about Jesus' life, it's to bring about faith in his readers. You see the same thing in the, in the gospel of Mark. There are some people who think the gospel of Mark is, is a record of the way that Peter preached the gospel. So Mark, if you read in 1 Peter, um, Peter uh, talks about Mark uh, being his, his faithful brother and, and so some people in, in church tradition really has said, well, Mark's gospel was Mark writing down basically at Peter's dictation, Peter's account. What's really interesting is if you compare the structure, the big structure of the gospel of Mark, and how it moves through the life of Jesus, and you put that side by side with Peter preaching the gospel in Acts 10, they line up real close. So, it's almost like the point of the Gospel of Mark, again, is not just to say this is who Jesus was, it's to get to the end of where, where Peter is in Acts 10, where he says, whoever believes in him finds forgiveness of sins in his name. Right. So, in that sense, we say the Gospels are they're evangelistic, so they're, they're biographical historical narratives of the life of Jesus, but they have a specific theological purpose. So there are things that they leave out. So you're like, well, how come this gospel says this and this gospel says this? It's not that they're contradictory. Why does this gospel say this and this gospel leave it out? Why is John's gospel so different than the other three? It's four angles on the same historical event, and each one has a slightly different purpose. Uh, so, what, one example of that would be in Matthew, you constantly find Matthew saying, and this was to fulfill the Scripture where it was written this. Right? Read the first two chapters of Matthew, filled with this. And so, a lot of people look at the, the Gospel of Matthew and say, this was written 
for, for Jews, to convince Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That's why it's showing all of this fulfillment of Scripture. The beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is this genealogy where it says that, you know, that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. It may not mean anything to a Gentile. That means a whole lot to a Jew, right? So, um, in the Gospel of John, John is constantly explaining through these little comments that he writes um, to his reader what's happening, particularly with these Jewish things that are going on. And so, he's, I think he's assuming that his readers are not Jews, that they're Gentiles. So, he has to explain or he has to translate different Hebrew or Aramaic words. It's like, so we, they took him out to this, this, this place, which translated means this, because he's assuming they're, they don't speak Hebrew or, or Aramaic. Law. So, um, law can refer to the Mosaic law, which is the, 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 the covenant uh, stipulations that God gave Moses. I like that. Even the five books of Ode, o the Bible should be the first five books of the Bible. So, sometimes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are called the law. Um, that's the way the Jews referred to it. They said this, so when you read Jesus saying something like, this is that the law and the prophets must be fulfilled, or something like that, he's talking about the first five books. Uh, oftentimes that's altogether called the law, but law in terms of its genre is uh, legal rulings or moral injunctions found within the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is um, the first five books of the Bible, so same thing. So you can hear people say Pentateuch, you can hear them say Torah, uh, you can hear them say law, it's all, it's all the same, the first five books of the Bible. So almost all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy fall into this, this category of law. So it's all these commands, blessings, curses, uh, and uh, big portions of Exodus and Numbers uh, as well. And then some of the things you have to think about with, with this kind of a genre is, because you'll get this, is, well, how come we don't follow this anymore. It's filled with all these commands. How come we don't follow the law anymore in that way? And then we have to think about, well, what does the rest of the Bible say about that? What does Jesus say about it? How do we understand the law where it fits in the flow of the storyline of the Bible, right? Um, prophecy. This is oftentimes when I think that we think we, we have a pretty good handle on at least what it is, but it's not, it's not quite as simple as that. So we often think, well, prophecy means just predicting something happening in the future. And it can mean that, and, and prophetic literature often does that, but it doesn't only do that. Uh, quite often uh, in the prophets, you have them not talking about what's happening uh, in, you know, the far distant future, like the, the end of the world and things like that, though they do talk about that sometimes, you have them uh, particularly calling the people that they're prophesying to or prophesying against, and they're, they're acting basically as God's lawyers. They're the prosecutors who are saying, hey, you guys made this covenant agreement with God. How's that going? Because it's not looking so good. So listen to what God says. 
Uh, and so they are, they're enforcing uh, what God had, uh, had commanded in, in the covenant and then announcing to them, if you don't do this, what God said was going to happen is going to happen. Now, they also do look beyond that and talk about what's going to happen in the future, but the prophets are just as much, we would say, forth-tellers, telling forth the truth of God, as they are foretellers, telling beforehand what's, what's going to happen. Uh, they're, they're both. So, uh, so the, the, the books that we call the prophets would fit uh, largely into this. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the four major prophets. And then the 12 minor prophets, which is Hosea to Malachi. Now, again, these will also include uh, elements of, of narrative. There's some narrative elements in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, and, and some of the other ones as well, and a, quite a bit of poetry. Um, so you have some mix genres there. And then poetry. Um, so we talked about this a little bit earlier in the, in the course, but um, Hebrew poetry, and this is really only in the Old Testament, um, Hebrew poetry does not consist of rhymes and alliteration and, and things like that, at least not the vast majority of the time. It consists of what's called parallelism. So you'll have one line, it'll say something, and then you'll have another line that's structured very similarly to the first line that advances what the first line said in some way. It either reiterates it, it goes beyond it and adds something, it, it's a contrast to it uh, in some way, uh, it, it's parallel with, with the first line. So um, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, uh, and the sky proclaims, uh, what is it? The sky proclaims His handiwork, something like that. Right, so, it's parallel. So, it's like the heavens and the sky uh, declare, proclaim. So, there's these parallels between the two lines. And so, those are basically synonymous. It just says, the same thing. now, Tom talked about this a little bit last week when he was talking about this poetic section in the book of Numbers that we read, this poetic prophecy the, uh, in, uh, in Balaam's oracles. Right? Larry says, I, uh, I see him, but not yet. Uh, or he says, I see him, but far off. I see him coming, but not yet. And so it reiterates the same thing. So the Psalms uh, are all poetry. The book of Job uh, has got some narrative sections and then a lot of poetry uh, that is all these speeches between Job and his stupid friends. Um, those are all poetic. The Song of Songs and large sections of the prophets are all, are all poetry. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, of intricate structure and um, this beautiful and oftentimes figurative and symbolic language uh, that's used. Now, just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not true. Sometimes we hear symbolic and we think, or figurative, and we think, well, that, that means it's not true. No, it's just a different way of saying it. And in order to read the Bible literally, 
we have to read it literarily. We have to read it in the way that the author meant it to be read in the type of genre that it is. Right? So, uh, again, I, I think in Exodus 15, I think if we were to read it and we were to say, well, God must have been picking people up and tossing them into the sea, I think we're misreading the Bible because it's poetry. It doesn't mean that it's not telling the truth. It just means it's not telling the truth we want it to tell. We're imposing our standard uh, on it. Proverbs. Proverbs are, yes. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, so um, one of the things that we will talk about with prophecy is um, it's called near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Um, and so oftentimes the prophets will, uh, or someone like uh, Balaam who's making this, this prophetic speech, will say things that have an immediate fulfillment for, for their people uh, or are said in a way that will make sense to the audience at that time, but then also have a far fulfillment in the future uh, that where particularly you will see this in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, like, so we'll see this in, um, oh, what is it, in Matthew 2, when Jesus and, and uh, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus back from Egypt, right? Matthew says, this was f- to fulfill the Scripture where it's written, out of Egypt I've called my son. Right? You're like, oh, that's convenient. Problem is, when you go and look at the book of Hosea, which is where that's quoted from, Hosea's talking about Israel. Calling Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. Okay? And so, we're not going to say, well, well, Hosea really meant Jesus. I think I think God the Holy Spirit uses that to say, Hosea is really referring to Israel, but then Jesus, they're able to look back and say, no, but the Holy Spirit also intended for this to be a reference to Jesus, Jesus being the true Israel, the true obedient people of God, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, but we've got to do something with that because this is not just me reading Hosea and saying, well, this is actually about Jesus. <laughs> you have Matthew, who is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, this is also about Jesus. Right? So then we've got to think through, how does that work? So, and that's a part of it. It's a much bigger question of how does the, the New Testament use the Old Testament? And how can there be these, these kind of two two fulfillments uh, of, of prophecy. Um, but that's usually, we'll talk about it, that from, uh, if you stand 
on, uh, uh, if you've ever been up in the mountains, if you stand on top of a, of a mountain and you look out over the mountains, you'll see a number of, uh, of mountains around you and they all probably look real close together, right? Because at that distance, you can't tell how far apart they are. But as you get closer, you suddenly realize that those two mountains that you saw from a distance that looked like they were right on top of each other are actually miles apart. And so uh, that's one of the illustrations that people will use to describe the way that prophecy works is that from a distance, it looks like they're right on top of each other. But the closer you get, the more you see there's actually these two, these two fulfillments that are separated. Um, and so in the Old Testament, you get, uh, you know, the, the Jews were thinking, oh, Messiah is going to come, but he's going to come once. He's not going to come to suffer. He's going to come to rule. And, and so they had to do some creative things to make it say that he wasn't going to suffer, but they expected him to come once. Now, the closer we get and as, the, as, the, um, as the apostles are talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this prophecy, they're saying, no, Scripture always said this was going to happen. You just, now that you're closer, you can see that this wasn't one coming, it's actually two. That the Messiah will come twice. Once to suffer for sin, once to reign in glory. All right, Proverbs. Um, I bet you can't guess which book of the Bible is the genre of Proverbs. Proverbs are um, usually associated with this idea of wisdom literature. So um, it's a type, that's a, it's a much broader category, would include the Psalms and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Um, we don't really have a good parallel for it in, in English. Um, but, but the Proverbs uh, specifically are these brief sayings that are memorable. They embody wi- the wisdom of many. They possess a fullness of meaning with a wide application. Uh, and they have a bit of a kick to them so that you remember them. Right? Anybody ever seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven? Okay, so it's a movie about the Crusades. And... Um, when, when one of the knights is taking an oath, uh, he's, he, he repeats this oath as, uh, as somebody is, is saying it to him, uh, and it ends, that is your oath, and then he reels it up and he slaps him in the face, and he says, and that's how you remember it, right? So Proverbs are a little bit like that. They slap you in the face. Um, they're, a little, uh, they're a little salty um, so that you remember them and that they, have, they, they accomplish their purpose. Um, one thing to note about Proverbs is they are, they're, they're axioms, they're, they're general statements about the way that, that God has designed the world to work. Um, the problem is that the world, because of sin, doesn't always work the way that God has designed the world to work. And so you can't read the book of Proverbs as if they're promises, unconditional promises, right? So one that we will often have people um, you know, quote is, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You don't need to talk to too many people before you realize that that's not a promise, right? And so that's a wonderful thing to, to try for, that in general, um, the way that God has designed the world to work is that if you train up a child to, to do the right thing, that they'll do the right thing, but it's not, a, it's not a guarantee. And unfortunately, I think a number of parents have been devastated because they took it to be a promise. 
And so we have to remember that Proverbs are general statements of truth that are meant to remind us of, of certain things. And if you read the book of Proverbs, it doesn't read like the rest of the books of the Bible, right? It, it's, not a, it's not a narrative. And so there'll be a bunch of things that seem like they're randomly thrown together. Now, it may not be quite as random as we feel like it is. And so there's some, there's some people that have done these studies that the book of Proverbs is actually, uh, is actually has a much deeper kind of structure to it. Um, but one of the best ways to study Proverbs would be to, to look up all of the references in the book of Proverbs to a certain theme. So something like uh, words or the tongue, something like that. So Proverbs has a lot to say about our speech. And so look up all the places where it addresses that and kind of pull those together. And you have parables. So these are mostly in the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus. There are some, you could say there are parables in the Old Testament. So um, in Isaiah 5, uh, you have what's called the Song of the Vineyard. It's a, it's a parable about uh, Israel. God talks about how I cleared all these stones away and I planted my vine in this place and then my vine went wild, and, and it's a parable about Israel. He's like, I moved all of this, all these people out of the land, and I planted Israel there, and now they are whack. And so parables are, uh, they're stories, uh, and they're meant to depict spiritual truth. They're, they're basically spiritual illustrations. Um, and so uh, Jesus will use parables to, to teach people these spiritual truths, and you can read in the Gospels why he does that. Um, uh, epistles, also just call them letters. Um, those are, uh, they're, they're, uh, we'll talk about them as occasional documents. That means they, they arose out of a particular occasion. So there's, uh, it's not like Paul just sat down one day and said, I'm going to randomly write to these people, and I hope it makes it into the Bible. There was uh, particular reasons that Paul wrote, and so you have some, somewhere like 1 Corinthians, where he's hearing about everything going on in the church in Corinth, and he's like, this is all messed up. I better write to them and tell them what's going on. Or the book of Galatians, where he's hearing that the Galatians are in danger of turning to a false gospel, and so he writes them a pretty quick letter saying, you better not do that. Uh, and so the, m most of the books in the New Testament fall into this category. So the, uh, from Romans to Jude are all letters or epistles. And those are easier to, to read and understand for us. I mean, the theology is difficult. Sometimes in unwinding them and interpreting them can be difficult, but we kind of get what a letter is. There are certain conventions that letters follow, like there's, uh, there's the sender and the sendee and uh, the greeting, and then there's a farewell at the end. There are things that are analogous to the way that we write letters. And then there's everybody's favorite, apocalyptic literature. So um, the Greek word apocalypse just means to reveal. So uh, Apocalyptic literature is about God revealing his future plans in some way, and it usually comes through dreams and visions with elaborate and it sometimes strange symbolism or numbers. Uh, apocalyptic literature was really common 
during uh, the, the time of Jesus and immediately before and after. It was a very popular type of religious literature. So the Jews wrote uh, different religious books that were not inspired, and they didn't even think they were inspired, uh, that would fit this, uh, this kind of, of, of genre. I once heard D.A. Carson say that if you want to understand, uh, he said this to a room full of seminary students, uh, if, if you want to uh, really understand the book of Revelation, you should read a bunch of Jewish apocalyptic literature because you'll get a feel for how the genre works. Um, because John, the apostle John, is writing Revelation and he's writing it in this, this apocalyptic literature style. So there's lots of symbolism, there's lots of numbers, um, there's things that, and there's things that are, uh, that, uh, like I mentioned earlier about the beast that came out of the sea and the ten heads and the crowns and the, and the horn. And so um, the idea of like a, a horn in this apocalyptic imagery means a ruler. That's the image that they use for a ruler. So there's these kind of standard, uh, standard symbols that are used throughout apocalyptic literature to, uh, to, to, to stand for things. And so uh, Revelation and then also parts of Zechariah and Daniel, the second half of Daniel, would all kind of fall into this idea of apocalyptic literature. So it's, it's, it's prophetic in the sense that it's looking forward, but it's, it's more than that, and it, and it takes on a very different feel. Um, there's a different type of symbolism in apocalyptic literature. Yes, Brett? Is that a proper literary device for, for the word Zechariah? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so very much uh, that was just kind of the standard way that they talked about things, that the genre developed. So, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I want you to take uh, about, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. And on pages 121 through 124, there are eight passages. Actually, here's what I'm going to do so that we, so we save some time, Okay. This half of the room, I want you guys to do one to four. This half of the room, I want you guys to do four to eight. Or uh, five to eight. Yeah, that wouldn't make any sense. Five to eight. So, and then we'll get back together and we'll just want to we'll run through and see if you guys can identify these different genres. So they, I don't have, or they don't have the, um, uh, the verse references, so you can't cheat. Um, so do your best to just if you and if it, you can guess, and for some of them it might be it might be more than one. So, um, but do your best to to give that a whirl. See if you can identify which genre it is. I will tell you that uh, apocalyptic is not one of the genres. So there's your hint. Let's, um, let's, let's take a couple minutes and see what you guys came up with here. So, passage one, 
But on that day, the day that Gog shall come out against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the fields and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. I had this one read at my wedding. Um, so, what do you guys uh, think in terms of genre for this? Not apocalyptic. I did tell you. I did tell you it's not apocalyptic. It's a good guess. Prophecy. Yeah. So this is from Ezekiel 38. This is a, a prophecy about something happening, and and see that stuff like on that day, and uh, oftentimes in the prophets there will be this refrain, you know, thus says the Lord, or this is what the Lord declares, uh, things like that. Okay, passage two. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for uh, have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. epistle. Why? How do you know? Well, it's not why. I mean, it, it is because it is, but how do you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's an occasional document. Um, you can see the beginning. Uh, you have no need to have anything written to you. Um, Lots of the, this uh, first-person plural, let us do this, let us do that, these exhortations. So that, that one's actually from 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, number three, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let us alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Parable. Yeah. Yeah, that one's a parable. That one's from Luke 13. Um, now, what can be difficult is if you don't have the rest of the context, potentially you could read it like a narrative. Um, if you have the rest of the context, oftentimes the parables will start with saying something like, and then Jesus told them this parable. That should be a, an indication. If you take nothing else away from this class, if it says Jesus told them a parable, what follows is a parable. Uh, and so, and then afterwards, many times in the parables, what you'll have is uh, Jesus offering uh, some sort of explanation as to, now this is the point. This is why I told you the parable. Now, parables can be tricky because sometimes you will try to, uh, you'll try to force too much meaning into all of, the, all of the, the characters and places and stuff like this. And so Augustine famously uh, interpreted uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in all sorts of weird ways. And he's like, well, the donkey that carried the, the, the wounded traveler to the inn uh, was is is prayer because it's bearing our burden to God and 
And uh, the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul who's taking care of this, this wounded you know, person. The Good Samaritan is Christ and all this. It's like, well, that's, that's all nice, but that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is it mostly true that parables are going to have one message? Yeah. So Jesus usually is using these parables to communicate uh, one particular point. And that's what he wants you to walk away with. And so, uh, and again, sometimes it'll, he'll tell you what that is. Uh, and depending on the audience, you'll see what that is. And so uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee starts with the statement, and he told them, uh, what is it? He told them, uh, told this parable to those who trusted that they were in themselves righteous and looked on others with contempt. So he says, this is who I'm telling the parable to, and then it ends up, the end of the parable is, the tax collector went down to his house justified, not the Pharisee which if he's telling it to people who think that they are in themselves righteous, this is a, you're not righteous. The people who rely on God's mercy are the ones who are declared righteous. Oh, pretend like you didn't see that. Passage four. Yes, so the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a commentary about, what are we talking about? Oh, yes, the tax collector and the sinner. Yeah, that's not a commentary on, on why you should pray in private. Yeah. Yep. Okay, passage four. These all look to you to give them food in their due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Poetry. I, I, I got it right? Why do, why do you know it's Poetry. Okay, well, it sounds like poetry. Yeah, so it's using, it's using different literary devices. Uh, I think I heard somebody else say there's parallelism, right? So that idea of when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things, right? So there's a kind of parallels. So, all right, good job this side of the room. This side of the room. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Passage 5. Uh, now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came to him and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And then it keeps, keeps going. Historical narrative. Historical narrative. Yeah, it's from 1 Kings. So it's got characters. It's got its story. It's got dialogue reporting things that happened. Um, passage 6. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. Keeps going. Law, yeah. That's from Deuteronomy. This is stipulations for God's covenant people. Passage 7. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him to the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one 
spoke openly of him. Gospels, yeah. So again, it's a historical narrative, but this is particularly about, about Jesus. That's from John 7. Then passage 8, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Proverbs, yep, that's Proverbs 17. So short statements, terse, rapid fire. Um, So now, of course, having gone through this uh, does not mean that uh, we've spent nearly as much time as we could or should on talking about all the nuances of every genre, which is why I want you guys to, to, to get a book like this, How to Read the Bible for All Its Words, so that you can, uh, as you go through in, in your own study, you can think through the different ways that genre functions. But what we've done tonight is kind of given you an overview of all this and now gone through this exercise so that as you're reading, you can be aware of the, the genre of what you're reading, and you know that there's, okay, maybe I should look into a little bit more how to interpret this, especially for ones that we uh, maybe aren't as familiar with, things like prophecy and, and even the way that, that poetry works uh, in the Bible kind of tips you off to think, okay, here's another thing that I should be thinking about as I go through this interpretive process. Um, uh, so for your homework, uh, we're actually, there, there's a part of your homework that we, that we didn't talk about tonight, but you're, you're already equipped to do it. You just don't know you're equipped to do it. Um, one of the other strategies they have for studying a text is called investigating a biblical theme, just sort of doing a, a topical study. Uh, and so um, you can study a, a book of the Bible straight through, but then you could also study um, what the whole Bible or what sections of the Bible teach about a certain topic. So, um, uh, systematic theology is thematic or topical Bible study. It's taking all of what the Bible teaches about a particular uh, issue of doctrine and putting it together to try to synthesize it and harmonize it so we know what the whole Bible teaches about any one, any one thing. So, oftentimes we'll say... Um, it's more manageable to limit it to a certain, uh, a certain author or a certain book or a certain section. Um, and so uh, it's going to be more manageable if you, if you do that. So what you're basically going to do is, is I'm just going to go on here. You're going to, um, the first step is to, to pick a topic, which uh, we've picked for you, um, is to study the, the theme of joy in Philippians. If you've been reading Philippians, the idea of joy and rejoice comes up over and over again. And so what you'll do is you, we're gonna, you, you, you choose a topic, so joy, and you're going to identify and list all the verses in Philippians that talk about joy or rejoicing or things like that. And then what you want to do is you want to study each passage uh, in its context and say, okay, what is this teaching me? What is this saying about joy? What is Paul telling us about about joy here. Now, this is not everything that the Bible has to say about joy, but we're just saying, what is, how does Paul envision this in the book of, of Philippians? Uh, and so you have this on page 129 of your workbook, this idea of uh, it's got a, a place for you to put the references, so the, the verse numbers, and then a place for you to make observations um, about it. And then 
after you've done those, all those things, uh, after you've gone through the different verses, you, um, you try to put them all together and think through what does Paul say about joy in Philippians and try to summarize it as much as possible. Um, so just give it a shot. Uh, I know this will be new for, for some of you. You can read a little bit more about it on, uh, what pages are those? Uh, 124, 125. Um, so, uh, yeah, just give it a shot. And, and really, you're using all of the tools that you already have to do this. So you are, you know, potentially you could do a, a word study or you could use a concordance like we talked about to find all the places where the word joy shows up in the book of Philippians or um, you're, you're using uh, the, the context to say, well, what's, you know, what, what is he talking about in this context in particular? Joy, he talks about joy and suffering. Well, what suffering is he talking about? Why is there joy? There? So you're using all the tools you already have. You're just doing it rather than doing it on a passage you're doing it on a, on a theme throughout the book of Philippians, right? Make sense? Okay. So uh, that's the main thing to do. So that, that work is on pages 126, 127. Um, there's some application questions as well. Uh, and uh, then a couple chapters from Dig Deeper. One of them is about genre. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about what we talked about tonight. The other one is on parallels. So also uh, fits because we talked about parallelism and poetry. Our next class, which is our second to last class, will be in two weeks on June 12th. Have a good night. Yeah, so they didn't include apocalyptic in there. They did it on purpose. Um,